Everyone has a story to tell. Welcome to Dingo Talk, where we explore the experiences that make us who we are. Here's your host, Carlo Guadagnino. What's going on, Chuckleheads? I am Carlo Guadagnino. This is Dingo Talk. My guest this week is head coach Tom Zagorski. He's the head coach of Otterbein. Nice little dramatic pause there for you guys. I feel like I, I give you the same thing every week. Uh, if you're watching us on YouTube, thank you. Continue to watch. Hit the like and subscribe button. If you're listening to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast from, we appreciate you. Make sure you drop us a comment. Hit the like button. Hit the subscribe button. Follow us on the uh, social medias, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook. The only one different is the Instagram page. It's Dingo underscore talk. Uh, Coach Zagorski. He was part of the his playing days. He was part of the first class with Coach Deblack, who we had from Case Western Reserve. Uh, he coached through his time at John Carroll, made an SEC appearance, um, and then now is the head coach of Otterbein and is very excited to uh, be the head coach of Otterbein. Um, and I think you're going to see that through his interview. It's a pretty long one, uh, so I'm not going to keep you any longer because, uh, like I said, it's a, it's a bit of a long interview. We cover a lot of things. So without further ado, this is Coach Tom Zagorski. What's going on, Chuckleheads? I am Carlo Guadagnino. This is Dingo Talk. My guest this week is the head football coach at Otterbein, Coach Tom Zagorski. You see, I had to make sure I looked down and I underlined and did some things. We had to make sure we got it right. Coach, thank you for joining us. Uh, Carlo, I appreciate it. I think we live in a world that we are we are afraid of vowels. So with your last name and my last name, we put it together. You know, we we cost a lot on uh, Old Wheel of Fortune, but oh, you yeah, see those vowels mechanic. At the end of the day, everything's usually phonetically correct. Take a step back, look at it. Don't be thrown off by different letters you don't use in a traditional day, and just roll with it, and, and you'll be in good shape. Well, I'm glad, and I'm glad, you know, I do it before every episode. I ask the coach, you know, hey, make sure you pronounce my last name. And the next line out of my mouth is, look at my last name. You understand why pronunciation correctly is important. So, um, coach, we're going to do this the way we do every week. We're going to start with your playing days, and we're going to work our way through to now being the head coach of Otterbein. Uh, so, first and foremost, 2004, why the choice to go to Case Western? Honestly, it was the best school that recruited me academically. And you know, I was a first-generation college student. Mom and dad didn't go to college. My dad was a, a cop in, in Northeast Ohio in a little town called the Village of North Randall, um, which was kind of a fun fact. Back in the 1980s, it was the largest mall in the United States before the Ball of America was built. Um, and today, it's a, it's a huge Amazon shipping area across from a casino and a, and a horse racetrack. But um, my parents, you know, they were, they were great providers in the sense of love, in the sense that we always had a roof over our head, and we never went to bed hungry. Um, we never had the best shoes. We never had the best clothes. Uh, we never drove the nicest car. Uh, but we did have what we had, and, and we had, we drew great an appreciation for it. Um, I think that's been really important in my life. And as I became a father, as I became a husband, as I became a leader of men, it was really important. Uh, but I went to Benedictine High School in Cleveland, Ohio, to take a step back to that. And Benedictine's a perennial power in Northeast Ohio. Uh, it's one of the it's the only school in the state of Ohio that's won a state championship in every decade that they've granted a state championship at the Ohio High School Athletic Association level, which is a really unique deal. And, and yeah. I say that because I grew up in this tradition-rich high school, and I get recruited by a lot of different places. I could have walked on at Kent State or Youngstown State, um, a couple of Division I schools, the old PWO, 
like, hey, you're not good enough, but like, we'd like to have you be a tackling dummy. Um, I was an all-state player at Benedict and started three years there. And, you know, on a good day, I might be 5'10". I think I was listed at 6'1 when I played. So I was one of those guys that, I, you know, I, I know who I was now as a coach. But as a kid, I was always upset about the recruiting process. Like, they don't know what they're talking about. I'm like, eh, they did. These guys are pretty smart. So, um, especially as I climbed the ladder in this profession, I'm like, that's not what we're looking for. It's another Tommy Zagorski. But I say that because Case Western Reserve, it was kind of a unique experience. Derek Slush, who's the offensive coordinator there still today, was the high school coach at my high school when I was a freshman. And he leaves the high school to go coach at Case Western Reserve. So he leans over to me, and, he, and the one day I'm walking the halls, and he goes, hey, you do really well in school, right? And I said, yeah. And he goes, you ever think about going to Case? And I'm like, Case? Like, yeah, okay, cool. <laughs> Just kept walking, like, thinking about it. And I'm like, oh, that's very nice of him. Well, he starts recruiting me. A guy named Joe Perella starts recruiting me and Greg Dabalak, who's the head coach there now. And I go through that process because – they open these doors to like, when I told people where I was going to school, they were like, whoa, you're looking at, you know, Mickey Mouse Tech and East Popcorn State and Case. They're like, holy shit, like, Case is a great school. Like, you should mm-hmm. really consider it. And here was the telltale sign. I'm at YSU for a spring ball practice. This is going to my senior year. This is like March. Signing day's already passed. Like, I'm ready to go. Funny fact, go back. I was going to go to Dayton. I'm a Catholic kid, grew up. Probably would have been a priest if I never met women. Like, I was ready to go in, in that capacity. Uh, but, you know, I, left, I met my wife, and it was the right calling for me, and the good Lord's chosen me to serve in a different way. But I say that because what's unique is I was going to go to Dayton. My financial aid package was what I th- it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. So now I'm sitting there and go, I can't take this much money out to go be a phys ed major at, at, and be a football coach at Dayton. Mm-hmm. Well, so what do I do? I go to the most expensive school, Case Western Reserve. <laughs> but – Coach Perella, Coach Slash, Coach Deb, they stayed on me this entire process. Well, fast forward, I go to take this opportunity. I go to Case Western Reserve, and my high school guidance counselor, when I walked in, I go, yeah, I got into Case. He looks at my grades. He looks at my test score. He goes, are you sure you got into Case Western Reserve? I go, yeah, I got into Case. He goes, I got to make a phone call down there. You're not the traditional person they go after. So at that point now, it's like all these things are stacking up where I'm like, you know what? That's the right place for me. And there was a relationship I developed with Coach Slash, with Coach Perella, and with Coach Debs. And I was like, this is where I want to be for the next four years and beyond. I go to Case for four years. I bounce around. I'm a finance accounting guy. I I don't like my internship. I'm going to go to law school. I'm watching a bunch of law and order. I'm getting ready to take the LSAT. I'm trying to figure out, like, what am I doing? At the end of the day, like, all I want to do is play more football and coach. And I remember I hit this moment my junior year at Case where – I'm sitting there and I went into Deb's, Coach Debs' office and I'll call him Debs in this because that's what we call him. But I walk into Debs' office and he goes, what's wrong? I said, Debs, I don't know what to do the rest of my life. He goes, what do you mean? I go, like, I don't know what to do. Like, I'm going to graduate from here in a year and a half. And like, he's like thinking to himself, he's like, this isn't usually an issue with our guys. They have internships. They know what they want to do. Like, I've done the internships. I just don't want to do this. The only thing I look forward to on this campus is coming to your guys' office, is watching film with you. When I was when I was a when I had work study, he used to let me call community college coaches on the West Coast and try to find if there's anybody with a three five or better that we can at least start a conversation with. So it was kind of my early you know initiation into recruiting and like all these other things. And kind of he never says this full out, but like I think he was utilizing me because he knew that this is what I wanted to do for a living. And it was such a blessing in disguise. I remember sitting in his office and I was just really emotional because I didn't want to say goodbye to football. And when that final day came and I was done playing, 
you know, at this point, I'm like, I'm just going to be a graduate assistant and see if I can, you know, and it's really like not taking the four years of schooling from Case and just throwing it down the drain, but it was not the definitely the upbringing that I needed in the profession, but it taught me a different way to look at the game, a different way to prepare and so on and so forth. So I get a GA job at John Carroll University. Now let me ask you about that. Before we get into that, before we get into that, so was there not an opportunity at Case or did Coach Deb give you the advice to maybe separate yourself from the guys that you had just played with? So he had offered me a job to coach. So this is kind of a fun story. Um, Jerry Shaplinski was our special teams coordinator. Coach Shaplinski gets offered a job to be the, um, he's going to go, uh, where did he go? He left. Sorry, check that back. Tom Kaufman, Jerry Shaplinski comes in. Tom Kaufman, who ironically enough just replaced me at Gilmore Academy as a head football coach, was our special teams coordinator when I played there. Okay. Coach Kaufman leaves to go to be the defensive coordinator at the University of Chicago. So the special teams job is open. Mm-hmm. Debs lets me interview for this job. I mean, I just got done playing. I'm 22 years old. I'm coming off the field. I was on the punt unit and the field goal unit. I didn't know the first thing about special teams. But he, inter- he lets me interview for the job. Now, that being said, I think it was a, it was a gracious interview. I would never was a candidate for it. Jerry Chaplinski, who we ended up hiring, who's now the tight ends coach for the uh, Las Vegas Raiders. I think he's the tight ends coach for the Raiders right now. He's got He's, he's been in the NFL the last couple of years. And another great guy to, to know in the, in the profession. An incredible human being. But Jerry ends up taking that job. Well, ironically enough, Jerry ends up recruiting Central Ohio like I do here at, at Carroll. Now, I say that because we didn't have graduate assistants at Case Western Reserve. Okay. John Carroll had traditional graduate assistants. So I could go get my master's. Mm-hmm. And then my thought process was, I'm going to go get my master's in counseling, school counseling. And if this doesn't work out as a high school, as a college guy, like I'm going to high school. Yeah. Like, my high school coaches are Bortnick, um, Joe Chavone. Pat Conahan, these guys walked on water. Like my high school coaches were like, I thought these dudes were like the, the Rolling Stones. Like it was like when they walked in the room, I was like, it's Nick Jagger. Like, oh my, like, these guys were like the coolest guys on the planet. Mm-hmm. And like every day I walked those halls and I looked at them and I go, they are living the life I want to live. They're, they're, they're helping kids every single day. They make a living. They got a roof over their head. They're like the coolest guys in this building and they coach and they're just like, they're, there's just something about it. Like, they were the epitome of what masculinity was for me. And it wasn't like that macho masculinity. It was they showed you the whole person. Mm-hmm. And when, when I say that, it's like they showed you when they were vulnerable. They showed you when they were tough. They showed you everything in between. And I was like, I want to be like those cats. So I go to Carroll to get this GA job with the mindset. I'm probably just going to return back to Benedictine, where I went to high school, and go coach there. And I'll be a, I'll be a lifer at Benedictine. Mm-hmm. Well, I get this. I go to interview for the GA job. And this is so crazy. I had already applied to the graduate school. I had already made my mind up. I'm going to go get the school counseling. Like, and I probably was going to help coach a case. Regis Scape, the head coach at Case, calls me, or at Carroll at the time, calls me probably 24, 48 hours after I applied. And he's this Italian guy. And he's like, hey, big boy, like, would you like to maybe come in for an interview? And I'm, I'm like, yeah, like, that's like the greatest call ever. So I go in and I interview. I interview with Andy Hoffman and Ron Delciato, who became lifelong friends, as well as Coach Gabe. And they offer me this graduate assistant job. So I get this GA job, and I'm like, this is the greatest gig on the planet. Like, in my mind, I'm like, there's not a better place in the world for me to be. And I go to Carroll. I'm a GA for two years. I'm there for two of the worst years in the program history. 
we're like five and five and three and seven. And the reason I tell you that part is that we had our two offensive full-time coaches. They leave at the end of the year. Okay. So the season's over. We're three and seven. They're like, this place is a sinking ship. We're out of here. Like we're out. So they leave. We start bringing in people to interview for these jobs. Well, I didn't apply for the job. I'm a graduate assistant. Like I don't have a shot. Coach Scaife walks in. He goes, I need to see you. So I sit down in his office. He goes, why haven't you applied for this job? And I'm like, coach, I'm a GA. He goes, you don't understand. Apply for the job. Almost like saying, like, I want to hire you. Like, apply for this job. So I go, I, can't I, do it without the app. I need the resume. Just just submit a, a resume like, to my desk. This yeah, like, please, I'm asking you. So, you know, I apply for the job. We go through the interview process. I end up getting it. And now here's what's crazy. I'm a GA. We interviewed four offensive line coaches. I sat through three other offensive line coaches' interviews, and then I interview as the fourth guy. So it was like, for me, it was great. Those three other guys are probably like, man, I never, this is terrible. So I sat there and I'm like, all right, this guy did this, this guy did Because you don't know how to interview. You've been a yeah. GA for two years. No one prepared you. I didn't, like, these guys come in with books, they come in with tape, and I'm sitting there like, I don't have any of this stuff. I'm like, I, so I gotta I was, get it. At night, yeah, at night I'm working on my book. I'm working on all this stuff, and like I'm ready to go. So I, I start. I interview. Um, I'm lucky enough to get the job. And uh, one of the cool things about Division Three coaching, as you are well aware, um, it's not the most lucrative gig in the world. And I got quoted two different. I got quoted two different salaries. If we hired this other guy, Tom Art, you would get paid this much. If we go hire the other guy, you'll make this much more money. So deep down in my head, I'm like. I really well, hope we don't hire this Tom Arth. I hope we don't hire this Tom Arth guy because, like, I, I want the more money. Like, I it was it was a difference of probably like eight thousand dollars, and I'm like, just, when when you were making when you're making five thousand dollars a year, and then you start thinking to yourself, you put a number in front of it, you're like, man, I'm like, I'm rolling in it. So, <laughs> uh, so it changes quickly. We end up hiring Tom Arth. I got the lower salary, but in the deep long run of this thing, it was way better for me and way better for my family. And um, I, I found a place that. I was able to get my master's still. I was able to get that school counseling background, um, which I think I still use to this day when I talk to families, when I talk to young men here. Um, it's imperative you understand how people think. What are their learning styles? How yeah. can you interact with them? Like, And I think that like when I talk to young coaches and I say, what do you want to study? Like sports management, this is a this is an unpopular take. Don't major in sports management. Don't. Like don't major in sports management. This, all sports management is this. What did you do? Well, I took a watered-down business curriculum and one mm -hmm. psychology class. Like, awesome. Like, you know, like, great. Like, <laughs> doesn't you know, help. If you want to get in, like, yeah, if you want to get into, like, ticket management and stuff like that, like, maybe that's the route to go. But realistically, it's not. It, it, like, go get a business degree. Go yeah. get a business degree if you want to know about business. If you want to know about the person, go study sociology. Go study psychology. Go study a discipline that you can go use. And it's transitive on a lot of different levels. And I'm really blessed with that because I was able to do that on two different levels at the undergraduate level and the graduate school level, um, which really just kind of opened my eyes to how to deal with a lot of different families of a lot of different walks of life. Um, so I, I become a full-time coach at Carroll. At this point now, we start recruiting, like we're crushing and recruiting. We're bringing in 100 to 110 kids a year. Um, we're starting to do it the way that you want to do it usually in this conference. Um, and I'm not saying that's exactly the model reason here at Otterbine right now. We've been a little bit more selective because of the attrition that you have and things like that. And we can talk about that in a little bit. But we start recruiting and, like, you're just pounding the pavement, recruiting, and you're finding the right guys that kind of fit who John Carroll is at the time. Mm -hmm. And 
the roster explodes. We got 150 guys in the program. Now, there's a great thing about having 150 guys, and there's a negative of having 150 guys. Um, the disadvantage is when you go camp season, every day you walk into your office at 5.30 in the morning, there's a couple kids sitting outside your office that <laughs> – train at Georgia. It's not um we were doing that with those guys. Um and you get to have those interactions with them. Like do you really love football? Are you really, really committed to having that opportunity um to be a member of our program and what you truly love. So I go through that process. Um I spent three years, I'm sorry, check that three years as the special let me make sure I have the title right. I was the special teams coordinator, the director of community outreach, the assistant director of recruiting. Um, I was the operations guy. I um I did not drive the bus because I didn't pass my CDL <laughs> test. I didn't try. I was kidding. I didn't. I didn't have that. But I mean, you have all these different hats you wear um, as you go through it. And I did all those different things. I was a run game coordinator. I cut you off the line, the tight ends. I had all the special teams. Well, I did that for three years. We go six and four. And Coach Scape ends up getting let go at six and four. He gets let go at six and four. It's a tough deal, right? You leave it six and four. You're like. I was recruiting at Padua High School. I forget, I'm at Padua High School up in Parma. And I'm at the, I see my phone rings, and it's Coach Skate. He calls again. He calls three times in a row. Like, I'm with a recruit. And I'm finally like, I got to take this thing. One second. Let me, excuse me. I walk away. I get the call. He goes, you got to come back like now. And then say anything else, I just hung up. So I'm like, okay. So now, what am I thinking? We're six and four. And I'm like, we were number one in the conference and special teams we had the number off of the line we gave like five sacks last year like you're starting to let go like yeah you start thinking like and you, now that drive across cleveland you drive from parma heights you're driving from parma to university heights which for those that don't know it's probably a 25 minute drive depending on the day whenever you can hop on a 480 and work your way over long 25 and, and minutes traffic on the center that's the longest 25 minutes of my life i'm driving and i'm thinking to myself i'm like god bless america like what is this I call my girlfriend at the time, now my wife. I call her and I said, hey, and she was living in Columbus. So I said, hey, I, I, I don't know if I'm going to make it to Columbus tonight because I was planning on hitting the Parma schools and I was supposed to go to a Columbus fair that night. Mm-hmm. And um, she goes, what's wrong? I'm like, I think I'm getting let go. She said, we can still come to Columbus. There's no, you don't have a job then. You know, she, she tried <laughs> to make it like funny of it. <laughs> I'm like, let's take a step back. Come down to the stadium. Coach Hayes sitting there, Brian Cochran. He's at Western Carolina right now as a defensive line coach. And Tom Arth, who's a passing game specialist for the, uh, for the Chargers now. We're the three full-time guys at the time. We sit down in his office. He goes, close the door. So I close the door. At this point now, when I see the other three coaches are there, I have it settles in that it's not me. Now, it's us, but it's not me directly. Yeah. So I end up sitting there. He tells us, he got to let him go. And I go, what? And he, he goes, well, they told me I had to win seven games. I only won six. And that was how it ended for him. So then the process starts. AD has us come over. We talk to the AD, Lori Massa, who to this day, one of the, she was awesome. Great person. I always, I've always loved Lori. Lori asked me, she goes, do you want to interview for the job? I'm 20, whatever. I'm there's a million people around the country that want this job. 
It's a really good job. Like I'm not ready at this point in my life to be the head football coach there. I just know that. Mm-hmm. Um, I go, I don't, I go, but there are guys on staff. I think that would be great candidates for it. And I say that because at the time, yeah, Tom Arts is a passing game coordinator. He's done a great job. He's got leadership oozing out of him. Rondo Seattle, who goes on to become the head coach of St. Vincent eventually, he's our offensive coordinator. Brian Cochran had been the head coach at Heidelberg prior to that. So there's all these guys that are on staff that have this like, you know, experience. Mm-hmm. And then there's me and I'm like, there's no way. Um, so I said, well, you, you know who you need to interview. So she goes through the process. I don't think Cochran went into the process. I don't know. You know, I think Dolson, um, I think Dolson, Tom went into the process. Well, Tom ends up getting the job fast forward. And then that we just hit the ground running and we hit, you know, we, we, we hit on a couple recruits. We hit on a couple transfers. Um, everything kind of rolls in. We're the number one offense in division three athletics. Um, you know, we get this thing humming and, and we're rolling through. Um, we go play the guys in Alliance. We lose on the, like, so the last play of the game, we're going to last play of the game. We're in a two minute situation. We had a signal that was called rocket. So it was mm-hmm. a, basically a Y cross uh, type of play. We're at the eight yard line. We had this kid, Brennan Carazzoni, who, and Zach Strippy were the two tight ends we had. They were both all conference tight ends. We had the first team, the second team, all conference tight ends. Not a bad situation to be in. No. <laughs> no. I mean, you're like sitting there, you go like, like we had 20 kids that were like all conference that year. It was awesome. But anyways, we call the, we call the rocket play. And I think it would end up going to Carazzoni because he was, we were in 12. He was at the Y. The H was, um, yeah, because he was at the Y and uh, Strip was at the H. But anyways, we hit this cross. <clears throat> well, our quarterback sees a signal. He sees this. He thought to spike it. Three seconds left in the game at this point. We get a first down. He goes and he spikes the ball. Now, here's the thing that's crazy about this story. The home clock operator at Mount Union must be the most honest human being on the planet. Why? He stops the clock at one second. So this guy stops the clock at one second. And I'm thinking to myself, wait a second. I take my headset off. I go, the game's over. I know the rule. I start taking my headset off. And then the official set the ball. So now I put my headset back on. <laughs> we come back. We're like, hey, let's run it. We get ready to run it. And Coach Karras, the legend that he is, LK, he he's the AD at the time. He walks onto the field and was, wait a second, this is wrong. And he, he, he was right. Yeah. He was right. My, guy, my guys that played for me, they don't want to hear this to this day. They still are mad at me because they were like, how did you handle it like that? I go, because he was we right. Were wrong. Like it, it, <laughs> it was the right thing to have happen. So we end up, they, they come out, they, they talk for probably 10 minutes. The officials had no clue on the rule. I know they had no clue on the rule. See the football go up in the air, you know, our kids fall to the ground, tears. We go, we jump in the playoffs, we go to the sweet six, or we go to the Elite Eight, we lose to Mount again by a touchdown at Mount. So it's like Groundhog Day. And I remember just like being empty. I was like, man, this is so hard. Because I, I wanted it for like I knew I was gonna have another zip their entire life to get to the point where they could be the greatest team in John Girl history. <clears throat> Through that process, like I said, we had a million guys. Our um, offense is number one in the country. I'm mm-hmm. a finalist for the football scoop coordinator of the year award. This is how I end up getting to the division one level. This is crazy. I'm sitting at my desk at John Carroll. I get a call. From an eight from an eight six five from a, a Tennessee Knoxville extension, and it's this raspy voice. Is this Tommy Zagorski? 
yes, it is. Hi, this is Butch Jones with Tennessee. So in my mind, I'm thinking to myself, like, this is somebody's messing with me. Someone's pranking me, whatever it may be. I'd love to have you come down. Now, fast forward, one of my college room or college teammates is a QC there for special teams. Mark Elder, who's a special teams coordinator at the time. Mark is a case guy, but is like older than me. We never played together, but he knew me through the kind of the, the pipeline of, of Case Western Reserve guys. So I go, I go down to Tennessee, fly down. It's an interview. I didn't think it was, I thought it was just talking offense. I sit there with Mike DeBoard. It was May 21st. I still remember this because it was my mother's birthday. And Nick Sheridan, who's a tight ends coach at Washington right now. Nick's been a coordinator in Indiana. A couple other plays. Nick's one of the best minds of this game. It was Nick's birthday and my mother's birthday. So I remember this because I was laughing. I go, you guys are wasting your time on an interview with me on your birthday, Nick. Like, you should be spending it with your wife and enjoying life. So Mike, De- it was his fiance at the time. But Mike DeBoard um, won a national title at Michigan as the offensive coordinator under Lloyd Carr. Um, incredible, brilliant mind. He puts me on the board. And I'm thinking I'm going to be talking about offensive line play. First play, what's your favorite third and seven to ten call? I'm thinking to myself, like, that. I'm, like, I'm anticipating to come in to talk about offensive line and run game and protections. So I take a deep breath, and I'm like, ooh, I did not think that he was going to do this. And I joked. <laughs> I said, what do we do on first and second down, coach? Just to kind of buy some time because I just wasn't – you're mentally not there. Like you're mm-hmm. mentally like you lock into one thing, part of a game. You're like, this is what's going to happen. And now you got to adjust. So I go through, um, I install a couple different passing concepts that we went through. And um, he stops me midway through the third passing concept. And he goes, all right, you know, football, you know, football, you're good. And at that point, I'm like, all right, like I, I blew it. Butch walks in. What's your favorite run? So we start drawing up. I drop counter. So I drop counter. Little did I know Mike DeBoard's favorite run is counter. So he's sitting there at the table. He's shaking underneath it. Probably a little bit of stuff I'm teaching. He's probably like, oh, there's no way you'd run that. Because when you love a play, you watch somebody else install it, you're like, kind of like, wait a second. Like, this is the same way I make my, this is the same way I make my buffalo chicken dip. So don't, don't, tell me, don't tell me how to do it. Yeah. So I'm up there. I'm, I'm throwing stuff up there on the board. And I'm going through it. Butch walks in. Butch sits down. Doesn't introduce himself. It's the first time I get to, like, meet him in person. Butch sits there. He puts his hands up. Rocks back and forth in his chair. He's watching me. You know, I'm thinking to myself, Elvis is in the room, you know, the head coach of an SEC team. Six, maybe seven minutes I'm presenting. Gets up and walks out. <clears throat> now, mind you, at that point, I don't see the guy the rest of the day. I'm going through all these different things, talking about recruiting. I'm breaking down Phil. A million things that they have you do when you go for these interviews. The day ends, 3 o'clock. I'm supposed to meet with Coach Jones. I walk in. I sit down with him. He sits back and he goes, what did you think? It was awesome. I really enjoyed it. I learned from your guys. It was great. A great experience. I appreciate you having me today. He goes, um, I'm going to offer you the assistant offensive line job at Tennessee. And I'm kind of like floored. I'm like, well, what do you mean? And he's like, no, I'm offering you the assistant line job at Tennessee. And I'm like, wait a second. Coach, I no disrespect. You were in there for six minutes. He goes, I have eyes and ears everywhere in this building. I watched you all day and you don't even know it. So little I know, I start working at Tennessee. There's cameras in every corner of the facility. <laughs> this guy had the whole had the, the whole place was bugged. Like no matter where you walked, there was somebody watching you interact and they could hear you. So he was watching me all day without me we, him actually sitting there. Um, 
and it was great. So I, I drive, we get back, I get back to Knoxville or get back from Knoxville to Cleveland. Talk to my my fiance at the time, my now wife. Um, I talked to Tom and June 1st, I drive down to Tennessee. I drive down to Tennessee and I start, you know, beginning of June. So I walk in, first guy meets a kid named Jalen Hurd, running back who's six foot five, 250 pounds. Because I'm Jalen Hurd. And I go, the heck you are, man. Like looking at this kid, I go, <laughs> running backs don't look like this guy. And like he's our running back. And then behind him is this kid named Alvin Kamara, who just moved in from Hutch Community College. Turns out to be a pretty good player. He's Josh pretty good. Dobbs. Pretty good. Pretty good. And a rocket scientist. Like and a rocket scientist. So I'm going through this and I'm looking and I, I realize like I am surrounded by these freakazoid players. It's one of the best situations I could possibly be in. So I'm there for the season. Mm-hmm. We start off the season. We're two and two. We lose to Oklahoma on in double overtime on ABC. Baker Mayfield. We're up seventeen to three in the fourth quarter. They come back. A couple PI calls. We tie it up. Seven. They tie it up. Seventeen seventeen. We lose. We lose at Florida on the last play of the game. We lose to Alabama by three. So they kind of show you where we were at Tennessee wise. I mean, we're, oh yeah, we're we're knocking on the door. We beat Georgia at home. We go we go take care of Missouri. Missouri was like legit defensively that year. Vanderbilt was the number one rushing defense in the country. We rushed for 350 on them. I mean, like, we rolled this thing into Outback Bowl on New Year's Day. We beat the tar out of Northwestern. And um, our uh, Mark Elder, the guy I mentioned before, Mark gets the head coaching job at Eastern Kentucky University. For me, EKU, all I knew about EKU was it was the place I usually stopped to get gas off of 75 when I was driving from Knoxville up to back to back to Ohio. And little did I know it was this incredibly tradition rich program. Um, Mark comes to me and says, do you want to come work here? And I said, I mean, I, Mark, I'm at Tennessee. Like, I don't know. He goes, here's what I'm going to pay you. And at this point now, mind you, I'm a Roman Catholic, I'm a Catholic, like going to mass on Sundays, like non-negotiable. When I was at Tennessee, it was the only time in my life I missed mass on Sundays because the way our meetings were set up. And things like that. So I ask him, I go, simple question. I go, Mark, I'll come to Eastern Kentucky under two stipulations. He goes, go ahead. I go, one, I can go to Mass on Sunday. He goes, oh, it's easy. I can make that happen. I go, two, you go with me. And at that moment, I knew he like smiled and he's like, I hired the right guy. So I take this job in Eastern Kentucky. Now I did that because now I'm on the field. I'm recruiting. I've got all these other opportunities. Plus at the time, my dad's sick. So now I'm a little bit closer to home and drive away. Um, and ironically enough, my first month and a half on the job, my dad passes away. So I'm sitting there at my desk. I'm making recruiting calls. And I keep getting calls from my mom. And my sister's like, hey, can you call us back? Can you call us back? And you get into that. You're like a robo-dialer. You start calling and recruiting and recruiting and recruiting. And next thing I know, you know, I get the call that, can you come home? He was sick. He ended up passing away on my drive back. Um, but I say that because I – God puts you in different places for a different reason. And he put me in Eastern Kentucky because he challenged me on a lot of different levels. And I, I go there as the tight ends coach. Mm-hmm. I go as the tight ends coach. I walked out the door as the assistant head coach, the offensive coordinator. I mean, like, I, I mean, I, I think about like the, the amount of growth I experienced in my three years in Richmond were incredible. The year before we got there, they were three and eight. I leave. We were, I think we were seven or eight wins that last year. We were eight wins that last year. We missed the playoffs by like a team when they do the seating. Um, and our offense was top 25 in the country. 
So at that point now, I'm like, this is it. Like I, oh yeah, this is like I've come around circle. Like I've earned it. I've earned what I've earned. Um, and this is where I'm gonna be. And at that point now, you, you get an agent. You start feeling yourself a little bit. You're like, all right, like I, you know, like I don't know, man. Maybe I'm here. Maybe I'm here. You know, I, you know this guy's calling. This guy's calling. And it's like, you know, I got into this thing to coach high school football. I got into this whole deal because I thought Art Bortnick, I thought Pat uh, Conahan, I thought Joe Shabone, Like I said at the beginning, like I thought those dudes were the Rolling Stones, and I wanted to be like them. And um, fast forward, um, I end up on the OC. We finished the season on a four-game winning streak. It kind of saves everybody's jobs in the facility because we were kind of in, a, in limbo there that last year. And then Tom calls me, Art, from Chattanooga, and goes, I want to bring you as the OC and the online coach. Well, I'm going to pay you this much. And I'm like, well, what's the pricing, you know, pay increase. I know Tom. Tom and I are friends. This makes sense. Like, and I went to Mark, and Mark's a great friend. I still talk to Mark. I talk to Mark a ton still. Mark Elder. And I go in, I go, Mark, here's the deal. And he's like, I can't match that. I said, I gotta go then. I go, I'm getting married. I go, I just I'm getting married. I've got a you know, young bride on the way. You know, I'm gonna have kids soon. Like it's all stuff I gotta worry about. I go to Chattanooga for a whopping two weeks. So two weeks I'm recruiting, I'm in Mississippi, I'm in, you know, I'm hitting houses in Tennessee, I'm in North Carolina, I'm all over the place. Well, as this is going on, the day I get the job, Tom gets a call from Akron about being the head coach at Akron. So now I'm like, he, 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 he calls me, he goes, what do you think of Akron? And I said, what about it? He's like, they called. And I said, go interview, see what it, see, you know, see what it looks like. I go, that's home for us. Northeast Ohio is where you and I are from. Like, I'm pretty sure we could kill him recruiting and everything else. Um, and we go there and he ends up getting the job. So two weeks later, I go from recruiting at Chattanooga. And I was, I'll never forget this. I walked into a high school in Eastern Tennessee. And the coach made fun of me because I had come in there wearing, <laughs> I'd come in there for Eastern Kentucky originally, the week before. Then I was in Chattanooga. Then two weeks later, I'm at Akron. <laughs> he started laughing. He goes, what logo are you wearing next, man? He goes, I didn't, he goes, I didn't even know they made clothes that big for guys like you. He's like making fun of me. So that was kind of funny. But, uh, um, you know, anyways, I, I go through the process. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, we end up end up at Akron. So we go to Akron. We start recruiting. Recruit a lot of local kids. We go through the first year. The programs, we have half the amount of scholarships you need. At that time, there's still a limit on 25, not making excuses. There was a lot of things we had to take care of. Yeah. We go through this season where we go 0-12. I mean, you talk about a humbling experience. I mean, and it wasn't an 0-12 where it was like 0-12, like we were here in this game or we were in this game. 0-12, like if one of our buses didn't show up, it probably wouldn't have been any different in the game, like this, the way these scores were going. I mean, it was we were, we were overmatched and outclassed in a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. Well, then this pandemic hits. Yeah. So now this thing called we we get the cultures like flipping for us. We feel our kids are doing great. All of a sudden, um, the guy that plays for the Jazz gets this starts breathing on everybody. They cancel an NBA game, and, and it's like, over. Life is, I'm like life is going to change drastically. So this pandemic hits. Now I'm now I'm sitting in the, I'm sitting at a desk on Zoom like we are right now spending eight, nine hours a day trying to make life as natural and normal for kids as possible, which it just wasn't. Mm-mm. And we're staffing, we're trying to do these things. Kids are dealing with mental health issues that you can't help. I mean, you can't even go, re- you know this, we all live through it. You couldn't go do anything for anybody. Yeah. And now you're sitting there and, and all you're depending on is prayer and an internet connection 
to try to make sure life is going to be somewhat stable for these guys. And it set, a, it set everybody back. It didn't just mm-hmm. set us back. But when you're in a fragile place where you're trying to flip a culture and try to change things, now they don't get to see you in person every day. I mean, I always joke, I said, the secret sauce is being able to interact one-on-one with us, being mm-hmm. in person with us, because you feel that energy. It's hard through these computer screens to have a, to read people, and you're yeah. talking to a room full of 60 guys every day, talking about, here's how we run this, or here's how we run that. It makes it kind of difficult. So I say all that, I think it put us in an interesting situation. We go through the pandemic season, we get told, now the MAC, if you remember, we're the first conference in Division I football that cancels football. As we have this meeting with our kids, we talk about how important it is health-wise that you guys can't play. We're worried about you. We want to help you. Yeah, yeah. Kids go, okay. Okay. Two months later, we go, ESPN came in with millions of dollars. And now for some reason, your health, we, we still care about you, but we can make <laughs> it work now that we have the solutions for this. So and no one was upset that we no one was upset we were playing, but it was just ironic the way that it, the narrative was. You can't play this game because there's no way to do it. Down in the FCC. Then they're like, wait a second. Like, you know, Tuesdays and Wednesday nights, there's really nothing on TV to watch. We could make some money here. We'll play six games. You know, they could do betting lines. It'll be great for everybody. So, um, so needless to say, we played on national TV for six weeks. Um, And it was, you know, for us, the season was awesome, you know, in the sense that we grew so much Mm -hmm. um, as we're going forward. Well, the end of we come out of the pandemic, the athletic director that we worked for gets let go. They bring in a new athletic director to revamp everything. And we were the next thing on the chopping block. So I end up going into the 2021 season, midway through camp. I'm miserable. I'm miserable. My wife, my, my wife, I can't, I don't see my, I don't see my daughter that we just had. She has no idea who I am when I come home. I'm at, I'm at a loss for words. We're just not, we're not functioning. We're just not doing things right. I take a step away from it. I walk away from, I walk away from what all I've done. My entire life. Wow. I walk away from the six-figure job. I'm the coordinator, all this stuff. I walk away, and I'm like, what am I going to do? Like, what on God's green earth am I going to do to make a living? My buddy that's at an SEC school calls me and goes, hey, you want to be an analyst? I said, can I do it remotely? He said, I think so. I get on the phone. The gentleman I talked to goes, you can't do it remotely. We need you down here right now to do this. So I decide. You can probably figure out who that was, but... I decide that it's probably not best to do that. So I go, I'll just sit out this cycle. And then what I'll do is I'll do something else for my family. So I get a job. I get a job working um, human capital management, a whole lot, HR solutions and payroll. They're up in Cleveland, Ohio. They're the longest family-run payroll company in the United States. Started with a computer programmer. We started like making payrolls on computers that nobody ever did. I say this because it was just cool because I got thrown into a world that I didn't know anything about. Mm-hmm. But here's what I did. I had character because I was who I was all the time. I had humility because I knew I knew how to serve others, which I talk about with our kids all the time. And I loved my family. And I tell us to our players all the time that when you go in the good book and you hear about love, love is patient, love is kind, love is all this. We know all that part. But at the bottom of it, it says it bears all. And I tell our kids that if it bears all, no matter what the situation is, you can make it through this. So I start working there and I I'll tell you what, I loved what I did. I love the people I interacted with, but at the end of the day, boy, did I miss coaching football? I mean, every, I mean, I wouldn't tell my wife 
I would tell my daughter, I would just, you know, every night when I would drive back and forth to the, to the office or to an sale, I was like, man, it'd be, I would drive by high schools and it was just like, Oh, I remember going <laughs> there. Oh, there's a football field. Like, so the, this is what I knew the moment was I had, to, I had to change what I was doing. So we're living in the Akron area. There's a group of little kids playing football in a park. Mm-hmm. Bunch of kids in the city of Akron. <clears throat> There's like six of them. They're throwing a football around. Well, me being a creeper, this chubby white guy pulls up in a car and says, watch him. And they kind of like look over at me. And they're like, I get out of the car. Now I think to myself, like, why would these kids even want to listen to me? They're probably <laughs> like, who is this? You know, this, who's this chubby white dude in a sport coat that's walking in? Like, man, this guy's going to try to take us or something. Like, you know, they, they don't, they're not going to trust me. Well, I get out there and I'm watching the one kid throw the ball and I'm like kind of, you know, give or try doing this. The one kid's trying to snap. So I'm teaching him how to snap and like, all right, here's a route and I'm teaching him how to run smash. I mean, you see know, simple stuff for these kids. These kids are like seven years old. They're probably in their head. They're like, man, who is this guy? So then I come home. My wife goes, why are you late? And I go, I was playing with these little kids. And she's like, what? Who did I marry? So I, I tell her the story, and then that kind of opens the door where it's like this point where I'm like, she's like, you got to get back into it some way. Mm-hmm. I'm at Mass every Sunday, and I'm staring at the cross, and the, the homily that week was about being true to yourself. Being true to yourself. And I'm like, I'm not true to myself. This isn't what. God didn't put me on the planet to do this. Yeah. So once again, you talk about funny things happening. I get a phone call um, from the athletic director at Gilmore Academy. Mm-hmm. This is a private Catholic school in Northeast Ohio, uh, about 175 boys in the school. And they just got rid of their, their football coach. They just uh, fired in March. So this is the beginning of April. Would you have any interest in being our head football coach? So in the back of my mind, I'm like, I kind of got this sales thing figured out. I could do the sales job. I could coach high school football, like make decent money, mm-hmm. coach football, like win-win, right? Go to my wife. She says, do it. You love it. This is who you are. Absolutely. I go in and I'm blown away by Gilmore Academy. Gilmore not only says, hey, we want you to be the head football coach. We want you to use your school counselor background and do this, this, and this in the school. Awesome. Like, this is great. So I take mm-hmm. the job and um, we have our son. Our son's born like the first week I'm there. So I get the job in May. A week later, my son's born. The kids get out for school. We run the whole summer program. Now, here's what's cool about high school football in the state of Ohio is that you can't legally do real football stuff. You can now. They give you 10 days. But before, you couldn't do, like, real seven-on-seven seven and stuff like that. But you got to do a lot of individual skill work without a football. Mm-hmm. And you talk about learning fundamentals and technique and teaching and what, what we got into this profession for. So I get to do this all summer with these kids. I make this incredible schedule where the kids have time off to do baseball. All this other stuff it was great. I mean, it was football in the purest sense, like getting down in the stands and teaching a guy that. Teaching yeah. a guy that. It was, it was back to those little kids I was teaching, the same stuff. We were blessed with a really good roster. We go 9-1. and one. We go 9-1 and one in the regular season. We get into the playoffs. We jump out 21-0 on this team. And in the second half, they're a wing tee team, and we had them stop. They hit. We take them out of their wing tee. They hit us on four fourth-down plays throwing like Hail Mary balls up that like you couldn't make this up. Like the ball's like spinning this way and it's coming down. We ended up losing 49-48. And I think to myself, I'm just like, man, this 
what a run for those kids. So in my mind, yeah. this is where I'm going to be the next, you know, I'm going to have my kids go to school there. This is where we're going to be forever. And then um, I get a call from two local high school coaches in Columbus. They're like, hey, um, we're on the committee at Otterbein. You should go apply for the job. So I'm like, all right. Like, so they send me a link. They send me the general link for this job. Mm-hmm. Not the like, not like some special link. You know, when you get a job, it's usually already decided. I literally get this general link. It's the day after Christmas. It's December 26th. I sit down. I go through the whole thing. I write the whole essay out. And as I'm doing it, I start research. And there was an essay essay because the school asked to write an essay about mm-hmm. your commitment to diversity and your commitment to the university. And I'm like, this is so cool. So I'm going through it. And Otterbein, on the other side of this, I always watched us. And I always thought to myself, like, that place location-wise is incredible. we got 75 different majors. I mean, we've got a lot of things that a lot of other people would kill to have. Like, why can't we be better? Mm-hmm. And I apply for the job. Lo and behold, I find out those two knuckleheads that told me that they were on the committee, they had nothing to do with the search process. They just thought it'd be funny to get me to interview for the job. And um, I go through the process, and I take over February 7th here. So now you're looking, I'm almost 75 days, I think, into my tenure here as the head football coach at Otterbein. And um, it's been incredible. My wife and kids, um, my wife grew up 10 minutes from campus. Mm-hmm. My in-laws live right here in, in Columbus. I've got family here in Columbus on both sides of my family. Um, my wife's got family here. It's such a great fit for us. And it's such a great fit because I look at this school. I look at the sleeping giant that we are and what we can do going forward. And I just think about, like, what's the next step for Otterbein? And I say this because I know you haven't got to ask a lot of questions. I've just been rolling with this thing. But I ask our kids, whenever you take over a program, I've always noticed whenever you jump into a program, kids can ask you two different things. They can ask you the question, why? Or they can ask you the question, how and when? And I can, without a doubt, say, here, standing here, May 1st, 2023, our kids have asked the question, how and when all the time they have not asked why they have bought in they have bought into our culture they bought into our and i say culture i see culture a lot culture i learned in fifth grade at st dominic's i had a history teacher that said culture is a way of life i'll never forget that as long as i live mr thompson god rest his soul mr al thompson has a way of life up on the board and that definition has stayed with me my Mm -hmm. entire life and I, this way of life that our kids are living right now, it's been awesome. We flip practices to the morning. We do lifting in the morning. Everything's morning-based here because now with the academics that we have on the, on the tail end of it, we can have everybody there in the morning. Yeah. There's no scheduling conflicts. There's no class issues. There's no issues for our guys. There's no excuses. They're not oversleeping class. They're not missing us. Mm-hmm. So what they do is they jump in, and we're here ready to roll. So it's been a lot of fun. Um, our kids are buying in, and uh, I'm really excited about where we're going this fall. So let's let's unpack uh, a little bit now that we're, we're caught up to where you, you should are. have stopped me. No, you you got you through me. You got through the story. Every question I was going to ask, you answered. So they most of the people that watch this, they know the questions. Don't they? they don't they don't watch for me. They're watching for you. Um, so first, what are you looking for? In a young man, in an 18-year-old football player. So what I'm looking for is, you know, I call it the, the three-rounded. Three-rounded is a guy that plays three sports. So a lot of different athletics. They're involved in a lot of different things. Um, 3.0 or better GPA-wise. 
That means that they, and I say 3.0 because mom, dad, and God didn't give everybody the ability to be a 4.0 student, mm-hmm. but they did give everyone the ability to take notes. And at the high school level, I feel like the cost of attendance is somewhere in that 3.0 realm, depending on where you go to school at. Now, you know, maybe you're a 2.7 at this place or you're a 3.3 at this place as we go into it. And I think the third thing that we look for is those three pillars I talked about. Does he show flashes of character? Does he show flashes of humility? Does he show flashes of love? And I say that because we can build that. I really feel we can build that when they're here. But I also, when I walk into a high school and the girl that meets me at the office is taking me back to, you know, Coach Rigatoni's office or, or Coach Tamale's office, like he's going to, she's going to go take us out to these guys' offices. But when I'm walking in that office, I ask that girl, hey, what do you know about, what do you know about Darnell Smith? What do you know about, you know, what about Jimmy John? I mean, what do you know about these guys? And it's amazing how much they can tell you about mm-hmm. those guys. You know, instead of that, then they'll say, oh, I love him. He's the best. And it's like, then you know, she turns red and you're like, all right, you know, maybe it's not the right guy. You know, whatever it may be, you kind of find out what they are. And it's amazing as you're walking the halls, you run into a, you run into a, an officer, you run into a janitor, you run into, and this also, you know, everyone says this is cliche. It takes me an hour and a half to walk the halls of a high school because I'm going to ask every person there because I want to make sure I do the background work to find out who this kid is. Because I've seen it on Huddle. He's a great player. He's, the transcript looks all right. The coach isn't going to tell me. Eh, he's just okay. These coaches' jobs are to promote their kids. Yeah. You know, and they live in a social media world. It's the same way, like, on social media, I'm never like, man, here's a picture of what I had for dinner last night. It was two stars at best. Like, no, it's like <laughs> every meal's a banquet. Like, you got to make it look greater than it really is. So I say that because it's important that we do that homework. And I tell our coaches that as well when they're on the road. Ask those same questions. Because I look mm-hmm. at, like, over the years I've been recruiting, it doesn't matter what level you're recruiting at. You're looking for the same traits. Yeah. You're looking for the same traits. Now, the difference is probably when I walk into a high school down the street, Six six, and he can bend, and he can do all this other stuff. And I'm like, "Hey, man, good luck!" Like, not coming here, right? But you're six three, and you're a buck ninety five, and your mom's got thick ankles. We might have a shot. So, like, there's different <laughs> things you look at when you're trying to piece those things together uh, to make it work. So, I think when you look at that from there, that's what we're looking for uh, to make sure those guys fit. And then also in the conversations we have with these guys. Are they genuine conversations? Can mm-hmm. you actually talk to these guys? Is it, you know, and that drives me crazy. It's like, well, you know, we'll sit in a recruiting meeting and they're like, well, this kid, you know, Jimmy's been great with me on the phone. I go, guys, I've called Jimmy six times. He's never answered. He's never called me back. Even after a text, how genuinely interested is he in us? Is he yeah. having, maybe I'm getting older. Uh, you know, I'm not single anymore. So I don't, I'm not chasing as much as I used to. You know, there were times where I would send that text, send that text, send that text, make the call, make the call, make the call. Now I'm at the point where I'm like, let's find a mutual interest. Because what happens is you fall in love with the wrong player. And at the end of it, you never have a shot at the guy. Mm-hmm. You never have a shot at that recruit. And you, in your mind, you may think there's a chance there. Now, if you break through, you have that moment where you continue to work through it. And then it happens. That's great. But if you have to fight that hard to recruit a kid to come to your school the, out of the gate, mm-hmm. in the world we live in today, they're leaving. They're yeah. the first sign of adversity. They're leaving because we all do this. When something goes wrong, where do we go? Something goes back, wrong, where do you go? You back go to this office, that office. You, 
comfort. You want to find the right answer. That, and the right answer is not always the right answer. It's the answer you want. And when mm-hmm. you want that answer, it's so easy nowadays to go jump in a portal, to go do this, to go do that. So you jump in, and like it's so hard. Then you're sitting there. And I, I joke about this the other day. I told our athletic trainers, I go, it's funny. We spend 98% of our time on 2% of our roster. We spend 2% of our time on the other 98% of our roster. And what I mean by that is not that we don't give each kid the same amount of love, but there's certain guys that you just have to do certain, you know, certain guys you're chasing as you go through it. When you figure that out, when you get to a point where it's not that point, where literally you're giving everybody the same amount of time. And I get this. Life happens. Yeah. Their life happens. And that guy walks through my door right now. I want to be here for him. And I want him to trust me. I want him to talk to me. I want him to have the ability. Or I want him to have somebody on our staff that he feels that relationship is with that he can go to. But also, it's important that we make sure these kids understand that we're here for them mm-hmm. as more than just football coaches. Yeah. And I think that's the biggest thing you find. And when you find the kids that fall in love with Otterbein, they fall in love with our process, the way we do things, and they genuinely care about one another, like that's when you hit it. That's when you hit it out of the park. And right now, you know, recruiting-wise, we're still active in it. Um, next year at this time, if you call me, if I'm still this active on 23s, uh, I'm going to be really disappointed in my process leading up to it with the 24s. Uh, but like I said, the time we know that we came into this thing, um, you know, but we're putting together a class that we're really proud of. Now, you've gone to a couple different divisions. So what is the significance and importance of Division Three? I mean, it's, it's obviously no scholarships, um, but what's the importance of, of some of these high school athletes still having a, a place to call home. I think it's an, I think as you look at division three, every guy's division three story is different. I started this with you. I was a good football player in high school. I was all state and half of Michigan, man. I was, I had the whole thing going. I was going to knock you out of the park. I could bench a house. I could run this. I could do that. But at the end of the day, like I said, I was five ten. Mm-hmm. I was five ten with certain arms and certain things. There was nothing I could have done differently in my preparation to get ready for college that would have elevated my game to a different level. Yeah. I took what mom, dad, and God gave me and I maximized it. And I think when you watch your Francis conference and you know, division three, there were guys in locker rooms with you that maybe hit a growth spurt late, mm-hmm. maybe found the sport late. Like we got a kid, you know, like I, I think about the kids that are in our program that, you know, some of these guys that we have in our program only played one year of high school football in our recruiting class. Like right now, that they wow. found the sport late, you know, division one, they don't have time for those guys unless they're genetically just yeah. absolute freakazoids that they're going to go take. I think division three represents the ability and it's not just for everybody. Mm-hmm. It represents the ability of people that still have the discipline that still have the desire to compete every single day and enrich their college experience in ways others will never extre- dream it. And I, when you do that, when you play at this level, you do it because you love it. And the brotherhood that you're going to foster with guys from all different walks of life, is no, there's nothing else like it. There's nothing else like it. My guys don't walk in the locker room. They're not checking each other's shoes out to go, oh, what NLI deal do you have? Hey, I got to run out of here. You know, the, the sandwich guy down the street wants me to stand outside and sign autographs for two hours so I can get 500 bucks. Like, our guys aren't doing that. What they're doing is they're playing the sport because they love it. And they also know the fact that that helmet and shoulder pads is just part of who they are. It's part of their process. And, and they're not ready to turn that thing in yet. And I think that looks back at like you being a Division three athlete, myself being a Division three athlete. It's why we played it. 
Yeah. We played it not because it was like, I'm going to get into the school because of it. I just knew that I needed it. You needed it. These guys need to have that ability to do it. And when these guys sit in my office and we do those end of semester meetings, that's what 95% of our players are talking about. They're talking about just how much fun they had. And I, I tell guys this all the time. Remember the first time you put a helmet and shoulder pads on. There's no other experience like it. No. Like I think about this. My son's going to be one next month. Like when little Bronco gets to put on his first helmet, and his first shoulder pads, like he better make sure he remembers that moment because that moment, it changes everything. Mm-hmm. It changes the way you look at life. I mean, that is your armor. You put that thing on and you represent something bigger than yourself. And I think when you do that, there's no other team sport like it. There's no other sport where you have 10 other guys that depend on you and 11 other guys that depend on you that aren't even on the field with you at the same time. And there's guys on the sideline that depend on you and they're going to run down on a team's unit and they're going to go play this. And at the end of it, it's this beautiful symphony of all these human beings coming together to put together this incredible product that -hmm. you'll never have the chance to do ever again in your life. Go play basketball at the Y. Go do breakfast or go play softball. Go play tennis. Go do golf. You can do all that the rest of your life. You never get the chance to put that helmet, to put those shoulder pads on one more time and be part of the beauty of what this sport is. And when you see it through that lens and you look at it, and I've watched it for the last 17 years, and in my 17 years of coaching, you know, eight of nine of my years have been at the Division three level. I've watched doctors, I've watched lawyers, I've watched businessmen, I've watched other coaches, I've watched police officers, I've watched helicopter pilots, I've watched guys of all different walks of life go accomplish amazing things, all because they got to play Division Three football. I watched, you know, when the, Ham- when the Hamlin guy in, in Buffalo went down, one of my former players at John Carroll was performing CPR on him on that field. He was wow. an academic All-American for us. And I thought to myself, it's probably, if not the proudest moment, one of the most one of the proudest moments of my coaching career, because that guy knew when he was done, he loved playing football. He loved it. He loved every aspect of it. Mm-hmm. But he knew the disciplines that he learned while playing football were going to allow him to be a physical therapist, to allow him to become that doctor he was going to be. And it changed his life. And he helped save another person's life, not to mention all the amount of other guys that have saved others' lives, literally and figuratively playing this sport so um sorry for that long-winded response but i just you look at this and i say it's like i, I say it's a symphony because it's beautiful mm-hmm. it's gorgeous and, and and the fans that watch it sometimes may not see it the same way we see it but you see that moment right you see that moment where it happens and it was funny i i, I laughed i go you know how much i love sports is and i don't know who watches ted lasso or whatever my wife and i we give ourselves an hour a week we watch this Ted Lasso show. So no spoiler alert if you watched it last week. <laughs> they install this new offense, and they look terrible. They look terrible doing it. And it finally goes to click for them. And they're doing it. They're passing. And they know oh, they pass it over here. They pass it over here. And uh, back the boy. Like, it's gone. They go crazy. <laughs> and, like, I get, like, I got to rush for it. And it's not because of – it's not because it's – it's a, it was because I knew what they put into it. Uh-huh. And when it clicks for a team, you see that moment, you get those chills. You get that moment where you just go, oh, this is why we get into what we do. That's why we compete that way. So, yeah, really important. Now, this this will be the second to last question leading up to – actually, there's two more after this. Um, this question is more for your yeah, – I'll be on a time limit, I promise. <laughs> the, your alumni um, and, and 
uh, the fan base. What is the message to the fan base going into 2023? Yeah, the message to our fan base is very simple. Come out and see us because we're going to look a lot different. We're going to look a lot different in the way that we proceed. And I've told our fans this. I've told everybody this. I've told in every interview I've done. I'm not going to know if we're successful next year. If we go out and we go win the OAC, God bless us. That's awesome. If we do that, phenomenal. Everyone will look at it and go, wow, you're so successful. I'm going to know we're successful as a program 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now. When I watch the lessons that we teach these young men every single day manifest into these incredible human beings that are great fathers, great husbands, great contributors to the fabric of our society, because that's what we need right now. Our society has never been challenged more to find true leaders, to identify people that take the lessons they learn on the football field, not of physicality, but of the psychology of being able to support others and be able to uplift others and be able to take the advantages and the, the talents of, of a wide receiver and an offensive lineman and how those work together. To take a defense, they'll be able to have the ability to have somebody that can communicate and dictate what we're going to do to be able to have the ability to do that. When you watch that happen, mm-hmm. that's when we're a better society. That's when we help this country be the best version of itself. And I say that because if we're teaching those lessons the right way, the stuff that happens on the field will take care of itself. And I, I say that all the time because, and I told our, I told our alumni this the other day, I talked to our leather helmet club. It's a group of guys that some of them literally wore leather helmets. They're awesome. They're great guys. They come back here. They love it. They, they eat, sleep, and drink outer mind football. Mm-hmm. And I told them the other day, I said, you know, that thing in the end zone, that scoreboard, first of all, I want some money so we have a bigger one. I'm just kidding. But I, I told them, I said, that scoreboard can be a liar. And, and they look at me and they go, what do you mean? I go, there are days in your life where you do everything the right way. You prepare, everything leads up to it. You execute at a high level. But at just the end of the game, it tells you you lost. Yeah. And there's other days where maybe you cut some corners through the week. You don't do everything the right way. But guess what? At the end of the day, they all say, hey, man, you won. You're a winner. But deep down inside, you know you're not. And I said, we got to figure out how to make sure that that doesn't dictate who we are. And I joked with them. I said, if that thing says we're a loser a lot, I'm a loser and I won't be around here very long. I know that. I go, but it's realistic that we got to make sure that we have figure out, we find that medium between the two and give ourselves the ability to really grow and, and help men develop. That's, that's a pretty strong message coming in for the first year. I like that. I like that. Um, <laughs> What's the most important lesson you've learned th- throughout your career? Never be too big for anyone or anything. I told our kids the first day I met them, leave every place this semester better than you found it. Mm-hmm. And I mean that in the sense that pick up little pieces of garbage, push a chair in, help somebody move something. Do those things not because you have to, but because you have the ability to do that. Yeah. Not everybody can do that. You know, and I, I think about that all the time. I watch, we've got, we got a, um, we got an alum that he comes into the facility every morning um, and he works out here and he, he's fighting cancer right now. And he looks at me and every day I go, how are you? He goes, I'm upright and I'm here. He shoots a hundred baskets a day in our gym. He was sitting on our bike the other day and I look at him and I go, you all right? He goes, I've logged. 10,000 miles 
on this bike. And I'm thinking to myself, I go, well, so I go, what, where can we travel? So I show my phone, I go, let's look, where could we have been? Like, this is so cool. And I'm sitting there with them and I'm thinking to myself, like the beauty of how he looks at life because of the scope that he has left in it mm-hmm. on this time on this planet, like is, is absolutely beautiful. And I tell our players this every day, like you have to make sure you leave every place better than you found it. And if you can do that every single day, it's remarkable what we can do. And I say that and it makes sense. And you're like, oh, that sounds great. But literally when I watch our kids walk on campus, I see them pick up a McFlurry cup or I see them pick up a wrapper that isn't theirs. Like it comes right back to the best thing I ever learned. Never be too big for whatever job it may be. Because why? Because life will humble you when you least expect it. Very quickly. You're a division, you're a division one coordinator. You think you got the whole world by a string, and you're sitting there in your office at the University of Akron, and you say, This isn't right. And I'm just not the right person for this right now at this moment. And you get up and you walk out and you go tell your wife you just quit the best paying job you've ever had in your life. And you're gonna have to figure out another way to provide for your family. And at the end of the day, like life will humble you when you least expect it. And I think when you look at that. And you have the ability to serve. It gives you the ability to lift yourself up and lift others around you. So I think that's the biggest thing that I've learned in this profession. And I, I look back at it and we talk about it all the time. We know all these guys that you saw in the NFL this past weekend, they've all got remarkable stories. You've got a remarkable story. We have families that have remarkable stories. We have my, my father-in-law came here as an immigrant with nothing, with nothing. And he, he, he retired as the head of sales and coming to East Legends in the, in the state of Ohio. Like you, you talk about great stories of people that just begins to scratch the surface what we could do, but why? Because they were willing to serve others. When we're rooted in that humility, what's best for we, not always best for me, it's remarkable what we can accomplish. I lost my train of thought for a second there. I, I was processing. There was, you see, this ADHD thing, sometimes it kicks in and you don't know where it All right, so... <laughs> The final question that we ask on the show, it's the same way every week. Um, and it's a little bit of a tongue twister. Um, was there a question that you were expecting me to ask you? And if so, how would you have answered it? Whoa. All right. Um, talked about coaching influences. I didn't give you the ability to answer because I didn't breathe. I gave you an hour long dissertation on who I am and that doesn't sound very humble. It's just me telling you a story about who I am, all that stuff. Uh, let me think. You know what? Probably to ask about my family. That would have been the one question I would have maybe just asking me who, you know, how'd you meet your wife? Cause I think that's one of the questions when I interview guys, the guy's married, how'd you meet your wife? Mm-hmm. And I learn a lot about the guys when I hear them tell the story how they met their wife, how they may have quote unquote recruited their wife, how they interact with their wife, and also how they respect their wife. Mm-hmm. Because I think in this profession, it's imperative that you're surrounded by great people. I've got an unbelievable wife right now who's probably during this sending me pictures of our babies and like, let me know everything's great. She's taking care of basically a move down here to Columbus and all the things she does that she puts on her back every single day that I take for granted so I can go chase the dream that I want. And I think about this, Matt Feeney, who's a real good friend of mine, a kid I recruited out of high school, he's a Columbus guy, Bishop Reedy. 
Um, he works for the Raiders right now. He's a defensive quality control coach. He was a DC at Akron when I was there. So incredibly proud of Matt. But Matt's wife, Katie, was an All-American softball player. Mm-hmm. She started her coaching career as a softball coach. He started his career as a football coach. It got to a point where they had to decide when they had a family, one of them could continue to coach, the other one wouldn't. And I remember asking Matt one time, I said, how'd you guys make the decision? And he said, Tommy, every single day that I walk, he always called me Z. He called me Z. It was Z every single day. I walk in this facility. I realize I don't just represent myself. I represent her career as well. And I think about the sacrifices our significant others make. My wife's work. My wife makes friends everywhere she goes. She's a great person. But she's done this at multiple stops so that I can continue to coach and do what I love. Now, I, I pray. I pray to God. I really mean this. That I can be here 15, 25, 20, 25 years from now where my kids can go here and we can grow up here and, and we can have a great life. Because I really feel this university affords that to us. Um, but I, I really, as I look at it, I think that's the one question I would ask is kind of about that and, and your kids and um, you know, where you're at from there. But that would be the one thing I usually most people, you know, that I would ask. So, How did you recruit? I mean, how did you meet your wife? <laughs> oh, I, I don't know how much time we got. No. So my, all right, quick, I'll, I'll give you, I promise you not to make a long story longer. My wife was a, it's ironic. We lose the state championship game in high school my senior year to Bishop Watterson in Columbus. My wife's a cheerleader for Bishop Watterson. I didn't know her then because she's up in Columbus. I'm in Cleveland. We go to Case Western Reserve. My wife's younger than I am. She walks into my house one day. We're having a late study session, if you will, for a group of a lot of students that may or may not have had alcohol, adult beverages located. We were throwing a party. I'll, I'll be honest with you. We were throwing a party, right? So we're throwing a party. My house was, was a party house. They walk in, and this young, beautiful woman comes in. She's got on yellow Birkenstock. She's got a little jean short on, a little white top. And I see her, and I'm like, oh, I haven't seen this girl before. So I kind of walk over, and, hey, how are you? Tommy Zagorski, I'm the captain of the football team. Where are you from? You know, and She goes, I'm from Columbus, Ohio. I go, oh, really? Where'd you go to high school? She goes, Bishop Watterson. I go, get out of my house. I never oh. want to see you ever again. Because I'm like, man, you know, we lost the state championship game. So those, those are things that you always hold on to. So she thought, she was like, I didn't think he was serious. And I'm like, later I see her at the party. I'm like, why are you still here? <laughs> so that's how our first date, first like time of conversation starts. Fast forward, we become really good friends. And we developed a great friendship. And I can't, I can't stress this enough to anybody that wants to have a great marriage. Develop a friendship first before the other aspects of what a relationship we perceive to be important develop into it. We became great friends. We talked. We, we, we talked for long hours and things like that. Never had kissed her, never, you know, dated her in college or anything like that. I'm recruiting Columbus. I'm working out at Lifetime Fitness on Polaris Parkway. She's coming off an elliptical. I'm coming off the bench. I see her. I said, hey, long time no see. You want to grab dinner? Yeah, great. So we grab dinner as friends. Conversations continue to lead, continue to lead. Next thing you know, we're at St. Peter's Square in the Vatican. I'm down on a knee asking her to marry me. Um, and fast forward, we've, we've now lived in couple different places with two beautiful children, my, my daughter, Lenore Maria, and my son, Bronco. And um, we call her little Lenny and Bronco, but uh, that's how we met. And uh, it's been a great, great, great ability to uplift me every single day. And, and I'm blessed to have her. Well, Coach, I think that right there is the perfect place to stop. I think it's a great place. That's a good place to send it off. Um, I want to thank you for taking the time to join us. 
Um, for those of you staying, wow, I should probably stop punching my microphone. That would not be, that would be better. Um, for those of you staying over for the uh, editorial with Serenity Brown, we'll be right back. This has been Coach Tom Zagorski, the new head coach at Ottervine, and best of luck to you this season. And you might see us out there. You might. We're 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 starting to put I would our schedule love it. together. We're putting Come on the schedule out, man. We'd together love to have for you. this fall. We're going to do ten games. So. Wonderful. We'd love to have you anytime you want to come into Columbus. We're a beautiful city. You know, we're one of the best cities in America right now. Top three cities for, you know, young professionals to live in. Opportunities abundant. Come hang out. We've got great food. we got great drink. we got great people. We'd love to have you here. So thanks again and uh, soar higher. Thank you, Coach. Have a good day. What's going on, Chuckleheads? I am Carlo Guadagnino. This is the editorial with Serenity Brown, which you would have known if you watched the end of the episode because I did not finish finish the episode um but she's ready brown this is the editorial and that's how we're kicking it off so go ahead um long one um i think we definitely need to pay attention to the clock a little bit better right i know he didn't really give much of an opportunity just to stop that's okay i just think going forward we need to make sure we get a rain on that everybody has a story to tell I'm just quoting. I'm just <laughs> quoting the. I'm quoting the intro. Um, guy who says everyone has a story. And then our uh, audio, not on our end really, on his end, cut out in quite a few places. But he kind of just he rolled through it. He rolled through it, so there was nothing really. And I mean, we're excited to see where Arvine and Coach Z. Um, he said a lot. He said a lot. It wasn't. Uh, there was not a wasted minute for those that watched. <laughs> um, he said a lot of things uh, over that time. I just, I could run through a brick wall for that guy. I mean, he just—he's very passionate. He's yeah. uh, what you call old-timey politician almost. That he—he can—he—he he has a very good way of um, communicating his message. It is a time. It was a—it was a little long, but you know, like I said, everybody has a story to tell. But for those of you that have been around with us, thank you. If you're watching us on YouTube, hit the like button. Maybe uh, subscribe. It'd be nice. It helps us out. Also, if you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts, uh, we appreciate you as well. Make sure that you hit the little notification bar and uh, like the episode. If you want to follow us on the social medias, which I don't get to do this anymore because we're not having a battle with some random guy that has wild dogs, but there's Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and Twitter. The only one that's different is the Instagram page, which is dingo underscore talk. Um, and Coach Z said a lot, as Serenity said, so we're not going to keep you any longer. We'll catch you next week, Chuckleheads. Thanks for checking out this episode of Dingo Talk. Don't forget to rate, comment, and subscribe. For more info and to contact the show, you can find us on Twitter at Dingo Talk.